Happy Mother's Day. If you're visiting with us this morning, we're preaching through the book of Esther, and this morning we will be in chapter 2. For over 70 years, the story of Cinderella has been a, a favorite for many generations. In the fairy tale, a royal prince goes on a kingdom-wide search for his one true love. Invitations go out throughout the kingdom that will that the palace will host a royal ball that is an elegant dance for all the eligible women of the kingdom. Then with a little supernatural behind-the-scenes intervention, one woman arrives at the ball and captures the prince's heart above all the other women. But the prince doesn't know her true identity. In the fairy tale, the prince is enraptured by Cinderella because of one night spent dancing together. Eventually, as a result of this one night, the poor and rather harshly treated Cinderella moves into the royal palace and becomes a pampered princess to live happily ever after. But what if the story didn't have a fairy tale ending? What if this rather fantastical tale wasn't fictitious at all? What if a similar storyline actually occurred in history? What if what, what, what happened seemed, seemed glamorous, even, even dreamlike on the surface, but in actuality had a, had a dark and perverse underbelly? What if the royal figure had a more self-serving and sinister motivation for hosting young women at the palace What if the young women didn't just have to dance with the king to gain his favor? What if the dream became a nightmare? But what if there was a figure in the background, a rescuer, a hero, who was so wise and so powerful, he was able in the subtlest and most surprising ways to work out even the most disturbingly immoral details in such a way that they led to an ultimately glorious ending. If that were true, the story's title would not be Cinderella, but Esther. This morning, our passage is Esther 2, and we'll begin by reading the first four verses, and we'll read the rest of it as we progress through the passage. Hear then the word of the one true king. After these things, when the anger of King Asuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti 
and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So Lord, would you lead us now? And I pray specifically for us that like the Thessalonians, the gospel this morning would go forth not just in word, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. Let that be true this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In Esther 2, we're, we're still in the phase of the book where the, the plot line is developing. So far, we've learned that our story is set in a, a glitzy and a rich kingdom, at least rich and glitzy in proximity to the king. But under the surface, it's just dark, superficial. This morally suspect kingdom is ancient Persia, and it is ruled by a very powerful but perverse and even impetuous king, Ashuerus or Xerxes. So today, we're introduced to a few more characters who are living in this kingdom. In verses 1 through 4, this would be easy to overlook, but we're introduced to some of the young men and women who live in the kingdom. In verses 5 through 18, we'll be introduced to a beautiful young woman with two names, Esther and Hadassah. And in verses 19 through 23, we'll meet her parental guardian, a Jewish man named Mordecai. Now recall from, from our introduction or over the past couple of weeks, as we've gotten into Esther, that the overarching narrative is deeply theological, but with a very intriguing twist. That is, God has so receded into the background at this point in redemptive history that he's not even mentioned. God is not even mentioned in the book of Esther, not once, not a single time in all of these verses. Yet, as we've already established, the message of this historical narrative describes the subtle sovereignty of God, revealing that even when God's providence is, is, is veiled, he is a very present help in the time of trouble. So today, let's, let's just add another layer on top of that foundation. Not only is God present and able to help even when we don't see his hand at work, 
The reality of God's activity in the world is far more striking than that. God is actually able to accomplish his perfectly holy and redemptive purposes even in and through morally corrupt circumstances. That's amazing. And that'll be our focus this morning. God is able to accomplish his holy purposes even through morally corrupt circumstances. Let's just begin with our first section as we see this unfold. Now, last week, Art showed us some of the flaws of this counterfeit kingdom. Counterfeit, that is, compared to the true kingdom of God, where the actual king of kings, despite Xerxes' pride, where the actual king of kings and the true lord of lords reigns in absolutely incomparable glory. So some time has passed here as our chapter opens. The context seems to be, as you read these first couple of verses, that the king is recalling or he's remembering, perhaps he's even to a degree lamenting what happened with Vashti. We hear that his anger has subsided. But he does remember what Vashti did, and he remembers the judgment against her. So maybe these young men that are serving around the king notice that the king is feeling kind of down, and they're thinking, hey, let's, 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 let's pick the king up here. Or maybe they're just thinking more logically and strategically that this is the next step in Operation Replace Vashti. But in any case, a declaration goes out throughout the kingdom to take the youngest, the strongest, the healthiest, and the most extraordinarily beautiful people in the entire kingdom and force them to provide for the personal pleasure of the king, whether they want to or not. Just imagine being a young boy or a young girl whose nation has been conquered by Persia. What would be familiar to you? Probably, probably not much in your little minuscule corner of the kingdom wherever you are in this vast empire. But what, what, what would be familiar to you would be your customs or your family. But what you soon come to realize is everything is about the empire. Citizens essentially exist to serve the empire and, and more narrowly to serve the king of this empire. Because notice in chapter 1 and here at the beginning of chapter 2 that both young men and young women are taken into the service of the king. Young boys are dehumanized through castration. And young women are dehumanized through sexual exploitation. The best and the brightest of both were brought in for the perverse honor of, of, of shamefully serving in the presence of the king. 
But what may have promised luxury undoubtedly ends in lament. Darkness is beginning to waft through the cracks of this superficial, glamorous kingdom. Have you ever felt like you were in exile? Have you ever felt like you were in exile, just stuck in the absurdity of a counterfeit kingdom? If you have, that's because you are in exile. You are in exile in a land that reflects some of the worldly values of ancient Persia, even today. Maybe you've personally tasted the coldness or the, the hostility of this world that still operates under the curse of sin, Romans 8 and verse 20. It still operates under the influence of the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. 2. The destructive nature of sin wreaks havoc everywhere. The reason is because Satan's goal is to not just make you feel bad. Satan's mission is to seek, to kill, and to destroy. And that means you. That means her. Sometimes evil is so pervasive, it really does cause you to wonder, could God possibly, how could God possibly work through circumstances like these to bring about his holy and redemptive purposes? How is that even possible? But the striking testimony of Esther is that God can redeem even the darkest circumstances, both for our good and ultimately for his glory. The king of kings, the true king of kings, isn't deterred by Satan's antics at all. For that matter, the cross of Christ itself testifies that God can actually work through unfathomable evil to bring forth unimaginable good. On Calvary, in reality, it was Jesus who publicly put Satan to open shame. Therefore, King Jesus declared that the gates of hell would not, indeed the gates of hell cannot stand against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But an invitation from this true king has gone out literally to the ends of the earth. The true king is, is not interested in, in whether you're the best or the brightest or the most impressive 
among your peers. This true king has sent his messengers to the highways and the byways to compel the outsider, the needy, the homeless to come, to come to his kingdom to buy rich food without price, to drink living water that will satisfy forever. This king wants those stuck in the, in the, the far corners and reaches of society and even this world. And he wants those just kind of drifting along the side of the road. He wants all of them to come to him so that his father's house might be filled. Luke 14 and verse 23. The true king's gaze is not rather perversely set merely on the beautiful, but on the vulnerable, on the weak, and on the marginalized. This king doesn't choose many, frankly, who are wise according to the world's standards. He doesn't choose many who are powerful. He doesn't choose many who are of noble birth. Rather, this true king often chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God often chooses those who are weak to shame the strong. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 28. In fact, the only way you can't come into this kingdom is if you think you're too good for it. It's not the well who need a doctor, but the sick. But those who have accepted this this invitation, they are so blessed. It's not the impressive. It's not the impressive that he's drawing. Rather, the king declared that the poor in spirit, those who mourn their spiritual condition, their natural spiritual condition, those who see who they are apart from this king, and those who see him and then begin to thirst, to thirst for purity, to thirst for righteousness, to thirst for holiness, these are the ones who are blessed by the glory of his presence. The ones that do accept the invitation are blessed ultimately because of the quality of his service to them, not of their service to him. We are welcomed into the presence of the king because he was willing to substitute his his beautiful holiness for our spiritual homeliness and to dress the nakedness of our shame with the glorious robes of his righteousness. This glorious king came not to be served. Think about who he is and hear those words again. This king came not to be served, but to serve, to offer his his own life as a ransom for many. This king is so glorious. He's so glorious. He can can even exercise his power with subtlety. Causing the morally corrupt temporary kingdoms of this world 
to serve the purposes, the holy purposes of his eternal kingdom forever. It's just amazing. He's just amazing. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away when Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Asuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Sha'akas, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Asuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head, and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his servants and officials. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal 
generosity. So we see the tension. We see the tension of these two kingdoms. The kingdom of the people of God and the kingdom of this world represented by ancient Babylon. We see the tension between these two tensions, between these two kingdoms, lived out in the life of one particular woman. There is a tension that looms over Hadassah Esther. Here is a young Jewish woman with both a Jewish and a Persian name. Her family was exiled, that is, taken into captivity when Babylon conquered Judah in 586 B.C. Essentially, a hundred years later, the Persian king Ashawaris comes to power. By the time he comes to reign, many Jews had already been given permission to return to Jerusalem. Yet, Hadassah Esther and her family remained in Susa, one of the capital cities of the empire. Was that by choice? Maybe they didn't have enough money to travel. Is it possible that they had grown accustomed to Persia? I mean, there's really no mention of any Jewish customs at all. This is part of the tension as, as the plot line develops. Who is this girl? Is she a victim of the empire? Or is she just a creature of the empire? No moral judgments are made. What we are told about Esther comports with what we've learned about the kingdom. In terms of value to the empire, we are told about her external beauty. She had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, verse 7. She had neither father nor mother. A particularly poignant comment on this Mother's Day. Hadassah Esther is chosen among many women. Because she is gorgeous, she is claimed by the empire. She is taken into custody for service to the king. In verse 9, this young woman seems to also be very persuasive, very charming, in addition to her physical attributes. She immediately wins over the man in charge of the women, gaining favored status, as it were. Esther really must be a remarkable young woman. But in verse 10, we feel that tension again. Her Jewish identity remains hidden. No moral judgments are made, but we're left to ponder. Mordecai's concern in verse 11, as he kind of paces outside the gate of the harem, it echoes our own concern. Is Esther okay? 
How's she being treated? I mean, she's in the lap of luxury here in the palace, but is what is happening here, is this good or not? Now, now the rather over-the-top absurdity of the kingdom and its desire to serve the king's desires is on on full display here in, in verse 12 as really a ridiculous amount of time and products are given for the beautifying of the women. Six months with myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women. Now, if you've gone on a date recently with your wife and thought, boy, she really takes longer than I do to get ready, I promise you it didn't take her six months to a year to be ready to go out. But this is the kind of faux glitz and glamour that's just on full display here with respect to the kingdom. But in verse 14, we learn that the girls are less princesses and more like a living doll collection for the king. You just sat on the shelf. Unless the king wanted to take you out and play with you for a little while. This really isn't a competition because, let's be clear, no one is going home. And here the darkness of the kingdom just seeps into the scene again. Now given the passage of time, verse 16, we learn that it's now the seventh year of the king's reign. So undoubtedly, at a minimum, hundreds of young women have already spent their night with the king women from throughout the empire before it's Esther's turn. But after Esther's one night with the king, the the competition is over because the king loved her more than all the other women, verse 17. So he places a crown on her head and Esther replaces Vashti. The king, as he is wont to do, Celebrates with a great feast. He gave gifts according to his royal generosity. Even offered a tax break to the people. It must have been quite a night for the king. And yet, there are no moral judgments made by the narrator. But the tension regarding the regarding Hadassah Esther, just hangs in the air as this section comes to a close. Will this young woman be willing to identify with the people of God or will she give into the empire and live as if this world is her home? That's the question. Can you imagine being a Jew hearing this story? You might be laughing mockingly at the absurdity of the kingdom in chapter 1. And then all of a sudden, these lurid details come out in chapter 2, and it gets quiet. And you hear about Mordecai, and you hear about Hadassah, and you say, wait a minute, I I don't know where this is going. Hadassah, 
Esther. Both of these names are extremely significant to this one woman and her intriguing story. But the tension we feel at the end of this section is is similar to the tension we feel as we attempt to live in this counterfeit kingdom before we go home. We as the people of God must figure out how to navigate ourselves through this world, attempting to minister in the world without becoming a part of the world. Now, sometimes this challenge is hard. Sometimes it's difficult to discern the right thing to do. But sometimes our responsibilities are clear and obvious. And sometimes the truth is exceedingly obvious. On this Mother's Day, on this day of celebration, we, as the people of God, first note that we are able to recognize a woman as opposed to a man. And on this day, we specifically are celebrating women. Today, we honor the dignity of all women, whether you're really tiny, whether you're young, or whether you are older, whether you are married, or whether you are single, whether you have children by the grace of God or, or whether you do not. We are celebrating the beautiful qualities that you possess as distinct from men. This is clear and obvious. This is not complicated. As a nation, to act as if distinctions between men and women do not exist is laughably, ridiculously absurd. Not only do they exist, they should be joyfully celebrated as God's good design. And on this Mother's Day, we rejoice. We, we rejoice in the unique gift that God has given to women alone to birth children. Uh, it's why we as Christians could never celebrate something as degrading as Pregnant Persons Day. That's absurd. I would say that that idea is demeaning to women, but that concept is actually so disconnected from reality, I think the right response is not even to feel offended. The right response is to laugh at the absurdity of the notion. Persia's bad. They know the difference between a man and a woman. We are not so sophisticated after all. Rather, on this Mother's Day in in 2022, we rightly praise God specifically for the wisdom and strength and beauty and power of wives and mothers, of the distinctive beauty of women. 
Women who love to serve their families, who prioritize their home, and love to do so in an attempt to be faithful to our God, this true king. Despite the fact that they have to endure absurd condemnation, sometimes heaped on women from a world that does not share our values and priorities as it relates to raising children and to the beauty and glory of serving one another in a Christian home. So mothers and wives, thank you for your faithfulness to the word of God. Thank you for your fidelity to the king of kings. And in this world, thank you for your courage to act with integrity as women, as a clear testimony to the world about the truth that God has revealed. I pray with the author of Esther, who ultimately is the Holy Spirit, and along with the Proverbs 31 women, the Proverbs 31 woman who's clothed in dignity and strength, that you can not only laugh at the time to come, as we heard read earlier, but you can laugh at the absurdity of the culture when it deserves to be dismissed with laughter. And, and, and I would want every young girl and every woman in this room, single, married, children not, to know that we as a leadership would be overwhelmed with joy to know that you felt in this place like you could flourish, that you could thrive as a woman of God, as a young girl, as a young woman, as a single woman, as a married woman, as an older woman. That would be overwhelmingly joyful for us as a leadership, and we are working hard to make that a reality by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Another obvious and clear responsibility for us as followers of Jesus, living in a counterfeit kingdom, especially right now, in light of what is happening with the Supreme Court, is to fight for the weak and the vulnerable, most notably to protect the sacred life of unborn children. Once again, if you think young women and boys were exploited in Persia, at least they weren't murdered like they are in 2022 in America. Who's sophisticated and who's not? Please pray for the Supreme Court justices, especially over the next few weeks, because the values of this counterfeit kingdom will be on full display. So pray. Now, to be exceptionally clear, we desire to be, indeed, we must be, compassionate with those who are victims of the empire, of this empire. That is, those who have been swayed by the values of this counterfeit kingdom in terms of their views on women and marriage and sexuality and the sanctity of life. 
But we need not feel an ounce of compulsion to adopt these and so many other utterly absurd ideas, no matter how much they are revered in this kingdom, because God has spoken and God has not changed his mind. To the degree to which we are rightly laughing, we are laughing at the absurdity of the ideas themselves. And that these ideas are being promoted as serious and right by many people in our culture. We would never, ever, ever laugh at the people being hurt by these ideas. God forbid. To those being influenced and manipulated. Oh, are you being manipulated, especially our young people? You need to be aware. Some of these ideas that are so popular in the culture have been popular for a couple years, like two or three or four or five. While the reality of truth across cultures globally has been intact for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. I mean, our prayer is that what's happening now is a blip, just a blip but a blip with incredibly destructive consequences. So open your eyes. Pray that the Spirit would open your eyes, that you could see the reality of truth. And adults, we have to be the ones in this place, in this church, we have to speak with a prophetically true voice about what is true in reality. If we don't, who is? <laughs> to those being influenced and manipulated, our our heart is to help. The first step in helping is to see things, to see things as they actually are. So may we fix our eyes on Jesus, the true king, as we navigate our way through this world and, and, and hopefully bring many others with us on our way home. But no matter what happens in the coming days, let us, as the people of God, walk with humble confidence, knowing that the one true and living God, that is our God, is able to accomplish all of his holy and his redemptive purposes, even through very morally corrupt circumstances. This is not hard for him. This is what he does. And he's been doing it for thousands of years. I pray that humbles us as the people of God. And I pray that it instills confidence in us as the people of God. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, were, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ashuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. It just so happened 
that Mordecai overheard this. This came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So we were first introduced to Mordecai in verses 5 and 6 here of chapter 2. Here's what we know about him. <clears throat> He's a descendant of Kish, who's a Benjaminite. And that will factor into our story in a significant way a little bit later when we meet Mordecai's arch enemy, Haman, and, and we find out about the ancient history between their people groups. For now, we know that Mordecai is a Jewish exile, still living in Susa, even after some of the exiles have returned home to Jerusalem. We know that Mordecai has been essentially raising his cousin and is raising her as his daughter. And we can tell that he deeply cares for her as he paces back and forth in front of the harem gate to find out if she's okay or not. Verse 11. But what we don't know about Mordecai is why he commanded, I mean, that's strong language, why he commanded Esther not to reveal her Jewish identity, verse 10. We're not told why. And we're not told if this was a righteous or a cowardly act. Again, no moral judgment is made. However, in verses 19 through 23, we learn that Mordecai acts righteously by relaying to the king through Esther that two of the eunuchs, one of whom was mentioned in chapter 1 and verse 10, that was Bigtha, that he and Teresh were planning to take the king's life. So apparently, the king's behavior actually does ultimately infuriate people, even some of those close to him, and they begin to resent him. So they plot to kill the king, but Mordecai overhears it. Their plan is exposed. The men who were disloyal to Ashawaris are executed, and Mordecai's act of loyalty to the king was chronicled in the presence of the king. So at this point in the story, the same question with Mordecai rises in our minds as it did with Esther. Is Mordecai a faithful Jew? Is he a faithful member of the people of God? Or has he merely become a faithful Persian who is loyal to the king? If you knew that Esther was in the king's presence and you knew what the king was doing, could you not have overlooked the two guys who were going to assassinate him? That not have crossed your mind? But it undoubtedly was an act of loyalty to the king. Because there's not much discernible evidence of Jewishness anywhere in either Esther's life or Mordecai's at this point in the story. Whatever our view of Esther's sexual encounter with the king the original Jewish reader now understands that Jewish Hadassah 
is now married to an uncircumcised pagan. And Jewish Mordecai is insisting on their Jewishness remaining concealed, even as he risks his life to save the king's life. You see the dilemma? What are we to make of all this moral ambiguity? Are Esther and Mordecai heroes of the faith? Or are these two kind of previously unknown exiles actually now acting as traitors to the people of God? What category do we put them in? Good or bad? Do we kind of lower them in the pit of moral depravity for their cowardice? Or do we march them up? put them on the podium, and give them a gold medal for their courage. At this point in the story, should we be booing loudly or should we be cheering wildly? What is God doing? What are we to do with this tension? I think the answer is that we're not supposed to resolve the tension at all. At this point in the story, I think we're supposed to feel the tension deeply and uncomfortably. The point is that the empire is a dangerous place for the people of God, and life can get very complicated. Even if we're pursuing holiness, real life is often lived in the, midst, in the midst of moral ambiguity. So then where can we turn for real hope? In the midst of the sometimes rather just murky moral morass of real life. Recall. Recall that God often accomplished his redemptive purposes through people who have lied, deceived, betrayed, slept around, even murdered others. Abraham, Jacob, Samson, King David. Not to mention Saul of Tarsus or even the Apostle Peter. Betrayal, lying, deception. The people of God are complicated. God is not only able... This is where hope comes in. God is not only able to accomplish his holy and redemptive purposes through morally corrupt circumstances. God is able to accomplish all of his purposes even through morally compromised people. The reason this can be true is because God is the ultimate hero of every redemptive story, including Esther. Now, in the coming weeks, we'll have ample opportunity to show how both Esther and Mordecai point to Jesus. For this morning, at this point in the development of the story, 
just take heart. Take heart knowing that God continues to use morally flawed or compromised people all the time to accomplish his purposes. He has to. That's the only kind of people there are. (laughs) But the reason you personally are not disqualified from serving God, despite your sin, is because you have been served so well by Jesus. That's how you can serve God now. Jesus has, in fact, qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, Colossians 1.12. That's stunning. How? We have been saved from the wrath of God against sin and given a future hope to enjoy. And we've been given noble work to do now because of the redemptively qualifying work of Jesus on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus declared that all of the atoning work for our sin has already been, de- already been completed, as hard as it is to say. Our spiritual debt has been paid in full by Jesus, and he announced it from the cross when he declared, it is finished. Therefore, When we place our faith in the redeeming work of Jesus for us, we become qualified to serve him in freedom and with great joy because we are saved by faith in Jesus, not by faithfulness to Jesus. That's the difference. That's the difference between freedom and slavery and joy and miserable duty. Did you hear all the effort that the women had to make in order to make themselves presentable in the presence of the king? Wouldn't you rather serve a king who makes us presentable by giving us himself? Oh, what a good and gracious king. To all who receive this king, to all who believe in his name, he graciously Graciously, he doesn't reward for good service. He graciously gives those who trust in Jesus the right to become children of God. John 1 12. That's stunning. This is the reason God is able to use morally corrupted people to accomplish his purposes. We have become part of the family of God through adoption because Jesus has borne our moral corruption and given us his righteousness and placed his spirit within us. <laughs> That's how we can serve God freely and so joyfully because of his faithfulness, because what have he has done, not because of ourselves. Our God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous now for good works. Col- uh, Titus 2.14. So then, what can one righteous act done by a single Jew actually accomplish. God used Mordecai, a morally compromised Jew, and through one, we're pretty sure, righteous act, saved the king's life, which eventually led to the deliverance of God's people from certain death. 
That's where the story is going. Because Mordecai saved the king, the king eventually saves the people of God, an instrument of God's protection for his people. But more importantly, Mordecai's life points forward to a perfectly righteous Jew who through one single sacrifice offered his life as king to deliver God's people from the horror of eternal death forever. That's the good news of the gospel. The reality of the gospel is more wonderful than any fairy tale. For it is only through the gospel that the true king of kings is able to rescue his bride and reveal her true identity in him so that she might truly live happily ever after in his presence forever and ever and ever. Praise be to the invincible Father and to his royal Son and to the most holy Spirit of God forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we love your word. It is so real. It is so applicable to where we live. And so, Lord... As your people, I pray that as a result of our time in Esther and in this particular chapter, you would be cultivating in us deep humility as we see freshly again our utter dependence upon you for our, our own righteousness. But I also pray you would be building up within us tremendous confidence in you so that we might live as the people of God here on this earth at this time in this kingdom. And we might be a voice of truth and of love and of, and of compassion so that by telling the truth, we would demonstrate your love and grace. Lord, lead us now to respond in worship as we revel in what Jesus has done for us. In his name we pray, amen.